Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together. We thank you for the prayer meeting this morning for, for souls. We ask you to give us revival. Help us to see you work in a great way and that we will have an impact and see the kingdom move. And we just thank you. We ask you to be with us as we study the last chapter in Song of Solomon and see your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Oh, that you were as my brother that sucked the, the breast of my mother. When I should find you without, I would kiss you. Yea, I should not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into my mother's house who would instruct me. I would cause you to drink the spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand should be under my head and his right hand should embrace me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir not nor awake my love until he please. Who is this that comes up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? I raised you up under the apple tree there. Your mother brought you forth and she brought you forth that bear you. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which have the most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all his substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. Okay. Just want to start looking at this. We've, we've been looking at this uh, picture and the bride is now talking at the beginning of the, this chapter. Oh, that you were as my brother that sucked my, the breast of my mother. When I would find you without, I would kiss you. Yea, I should not be despised. This is a picture, not that she wants him to be your brother, because this is, you know, that's not the relationship she's wanting. But what she's saying is, she ha in their custom, she has to be reserved. There's no outward displays of affection that she can do even as a wife to her husband in, the, in their culture. But if you were to meet your father or your brother, you could give them a hug, you could give them the kiss. And she says, I can't even do this. And he goes, I almost wish that you were my brother so that when I see you and I want to uh, come, come to you, I, can be able, I could show affection and it would not be despised. It wasn't so long ago even in our country where displays of affection were not you know, between, between people were very much taboo. You were, you were considered a loose or immoral person if you were out hugging and kissing and, and everything out in public. Uh, I kind of wish we had that back in our day and age again sometimes because there was way too much, way too much intensity on this. But even in those days, you could give a hug to your fam you know, a family member or even a, a quick kiss type thing and without this. And that's what she's saying. I desire you so much that I wish that you were my brother so that I could just give you this hug. I could give you the, I could give you the kiss even when other people are around and you wouldn't despise me for it. Uh, it's not really the relationship she wants with them, but she wants that relationship that she can display <laughs> and for others to see. And, and it goes, I would lead you and bring you into my mother's house who would instruct me. I would cause you to drink the spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. When the people got married, oftentimes the first place they would go is to, their, to the bride's mother's house <laughs> to consummate the marriage at that time, or at the very least, the groom's mother's house. And we don't really separate the, or, or think about it, this, but oftentimes in, their, in that day, they had actual separate houses. The, the husband had his house, and he'd bring the wife in for relations, but she lived 
in another tent or another part of the house most of the time, especially when there were two or three wives involved. Uh, there wasn't this idea like we have, the husband and wives are always in the same, same room. That's their, their room. That wasn't the part of their way of life. Uh, it, if you read you know, different, different things, like uh, if you remember the story of Esther, she had to invite the king to her dwelling place when she invited the king and, and Haman, uh, Haman in before she said, you know, my people have been killed. She invited them to her house. And if you look at the pictures of the palace, we had the king over here. The, Esther had her own place, and then there was the place where all the other wives were. She, she was special. She had her own, her own place. Um, but it was common. You know, if you're thinking about somebody like Jacob who had four wives, each one of them would have had their tent and they would have been invited to him on their day or night or week or however they divided up their time with him. So he says, I, I long to lead you in. I long to lead you in and consummate this relationship of the one who instructed me. Now the mothers are supposed to instruct their daughters on how to be a mother and a wife. Just as fathers are supposed to train their, children, their, their boys how to be husbands and fathers. You know, how do you treat the person? How do you behave? The sad thing we have in our day and age are how many people are growing up having never seen a father, never seen a, a good husband, never seen a mother, never seen a, a wife. Now they know who those people are. They know, they know mom and dad, hopefully, but they've never been trained or seen what it means to be a father what it means to be a husband. And if you watch the TV shows, you definitely don't see how to be a father or, or a mother or a husband or a wife anymore. Because all of them are so narcissistic and me-centered that they would not put anybody else first. And that's the problem that we have. This is why there's so many divorces, so many wrecked homes. And then we see people who have generation after generation who have not seen a good mother or father or husband and wife even if they want to be, they don't know how to be. And this is one of the places that I think the church can have the best influence on it is we start matching up people who at least know God's way of doing things and start matching them up with people who need to see this. My prayer for my kids were, God, how are they going to find a mother, uh, a, uh, a spouse that knows what it means to be a father, knows to be a mother, what it means to be a, a husband, what it means to be a wife. And we were praying a long time for those. For those. And we've got some beautiful daughter-in-laws you know, right now and a, and a great son-in-law. But each one of them have some really interesting past in their, in their life. All of them have families that are broken. You know, which the only example they have of a non-broken non life is my wife and I you know, that have been together and don't plan to get separated, but every one of them have broken families, which means our grandkids all have at least six grandparents <laughs> instead of four because there's broken, broken families and remarriages. And it's a really sad thing because as Christians, we should be able to say this is what God says, and we pattern our way of acting after him. And sometimes when we pattern our life after God, people think it's strange because it's not the lifestyle they're seeing. And that's good. We're supposed to be strange. We are from a different world because we belong to God's kingdom. We follow different rules, different laws, and different ways of doing things. But they're God's ways. They're the ways it's supposed to be run. 
And it's if you've ever been to another country, you, you know, you, you'll understand how little things can be, get you into a lot of trouble. You know, if you stretch out a left hand to much of the Middle East, you insult them greatly because that's your unclean hand. That's the hand you wipe your butt with when you go to the bathroom. It's unclean. It's not, you, don't, you don't do anything with your left hand. You don't hand them anything with your left hand. Uh, you, know, you can do little hand motions or something that we don't think of as all, and they're going, oh, my, what, what did you just do? What did I just do? Well, you just said the worst word you possibly, insult you possibly could. You know, we don't always know, and this is the way we are as Christians. We are to live completely different from what the world accepts. And we're seeing it. As the world gets darker and darker and we follow God, we look really weird to people. When we tell people you, you shouldn't be flirting with the opposite sex when you're married, the world doesn't have any problem with it. You know, even though it leads to divorce and bad problems and, and issues, the world has no problem with, oh, it's, it's pure and innocent as long as you don't go to bed with them. Well, I don't know. Planting seeds in people's minds that you're willing to do something is not a good starting place. And, you know, and we look at all these things that happen. The movie you watched late, last night, the guy was, you know, you saw toward the, as God was starting to get his heart, you saw him starting, you see on his face the reaction as he was starting to realize that he wasn't in a good place. He wasn't encouraging good behavior, and as a matter of fact, was encouraging bad behavior. And we need to be careful as Christians that we do not live in a way, even though we have grace and mercy, that we don't live in a way that encourages people's bad behavior or gets them down the path of bad behavior, which is even worse. And here we see her saying, my mother instructed me. And then she goes, Lenny, I want you to cause you to drink of the spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. And I really think this is talking about the best that she could offer. Here's my spiced wine. Here's my... Here's the pomegranate. I'm not, pomegranate comes up a lot in this, in this book. And there are a couple of guys who have said that they believe that people, that uh, the Middle Easterners believe that pomegranates have an aphrodisiac effect to them. Well, because pomegranates in, in the Old Testament anyway. Yeah. Well, it's a fruit in that whole area. It's yeah, a really... on the pomegranates Yeah. Yeah. So there's something special about it. I have not found anybody who really knows what it is, the customs of the, of the world around Israel was that it was an aphrodisiac and, and uh, enticed love. Uh, but there's no place in Jewish writing that ever says that that's, that's true, but I'm not gonna rule it out. I mean, in our day, we think of it as chocolate, you know, and other various things. So we do know that mandrake was considered an aphrodisiac. Uh, so, we don't know exactly what it is, but I think it really is, you know, my spiced wine, I'm giving you, I'm going to offer you the best, and I want you to take the best. And that's what we do as Christians to God. God, I want to give you my best, not, for, not because I want to get you to love me or, or be special, but God, I love you so much, I'm giving you the best that I have to give you, which isn't much. We don't have anything worth giving him, but we give him the best we do have. And, you know, the, the wonderful thing about this is this next verse. His left hand should be under my head and his right hand should embrace me. We think about this. When we make a move toward God, and she's talking about pretty much being very adventurous and being very forward in all that she's doing, and what is, and what is she saying on this? He's going to embrace her. And this is the way God acts with us. When we make the steps toward him, he does not just wait for us to get there and say, well, no, no, I'm not now. 
as the prodigal son's father did, he ran to meet the son. We take a few steps toward God, and he runs out to meet us. He runs out to embrace us. And this particular embrace is an, an embrace of great intimacy. All right? This is not just give, give this person a hug. This is the one that has your, their hand is under, your, under their head, and their right arm is around them. This is, this is the bed hug. This isn't the hug, hug being described, you know, oh, let me just give you a nice hug. This is a very intimate embrace, and this is what he sa she says. I approached you, and these things are fairly forward. You know, I, want to, I desire to kiss you. I, I want to bring you into my mom's house, you know, into her very room. I want to give you the best that I have. And her answer is, he should be embracing me. His embrace. And this is the third time we've looked at this embrace. And this is the very intimate, strong embrace. And each time it's in response to her initiation. And if we really, truly want to feel in God's embrace around us, we step out toward him and seek him. We confess our sins, we repent, we turn to him, and God embraces. And I think this is important for us to understand. I've said so many times, even many Christians have this idea that if I stick my head out and I try to do something for God, he's going to beat the daylights out of me for, because I don't do it right. No. He's going to grab hold of us. He's going to give that embrace and say, I am just so glad that you've decided to step forward. I'm going to give you the strength to go move out. And, you know, this is the problem. Too many people are so afraid to do anything for God that they don't do anything. Because there's this great thought, well, gee, if I do it wrong, if I do it wrong, something bad's going to happen. And unfortunately, that's the world's way of thinking. How many children go, grow up with this conditional love? As long as you do what I want you to do, I'm going to love you, I'll give you whatever it is, but as soon as you mess up, you know, and there's, there, of course, needs to be discipline, but that discipline has to be tempered with love and kindness and encouragement. All right, you tried. You know, you tried, do this next time. Or if you, and there's a time when they keep messing up, keep messing up, and keep not listening, then discipline has to be in there, but that has to be tempered with love. But God is out there saying, hey, oh, good, you took, you took a step toward me. Let, me. let me help you. And the prodigal son, had just came to, says it came to himself and he started going back to the father and he was all set to be a servant for the father. You know, father, I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Just make me a servant because your servants actually get fed and have a, have a place to live and I don't, have a, I don't have any food and I don't have a place to live so just, I want to just be a servant. And the father ran to him and embraced him and said, thank you for coming back home. You're my son. And wouldn't even listen to his speech that he had prepared and made him, you know, put him back into place. And that's how God is with us. We go out, we do stupid things, we live, we live in riotous living, making bad decisions. We come back to him and he just embraces us and says, welcome back. Welcome back. You've, you've taken the steps toward me. And these, if you really look at them, these are very forward type things for, for their, their place. You know? And she's looking forward to his embrace. Looking forward to his, not, not rejection, to the intimate embrace. And then she turns and talks to the friends. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir, that you stir not up, nor awake my love until he please. In other words, when he's resting, leave him alone. You know, leave him alone. 
And it's, it's a great blessing and great honor that you can do for somebody is just let them rest. Uh, even if you want to do something else, uh, you know, I like to let my wife just sleep in the mornings, you know, on the rare morning that she can sleep. And just let her sleep in. I get up as quiet as I can, go out and do my exercises or my reading or whatever and try to leave, let, her, let her just enjoy. And here she's telling the, the daughters, don't make noise out there. Don't make noise out there. Don't, don't cause any problems. And then their response back is kind of an interesting one in verse 5. Who is this that comes up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? I raise thee from under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. Uh, there she brought you forth that bear you. And this is kind of an interesting thing. Who are you leaning on? This is what, who is this that comes up from the wilderness or leaning on her beloved? And that is leaning for support, literally. We, when we walk with God, should be leaning on him as our full support. Doing things his way, doing things, you know, letting him be our support, letting him be our defender. And when people will say, well, you're just using God as a crutch, I'm going, no problem, yes. Uh, what, what is your crutch? Because I know they have a crutch. They may not think they have a crutch. Their, their crutch might be that they feel that I'm doing it all on my own. Okay, that crutch works real good until you get sick or, or really bad things happen to you and that gets knocked out from under you. And it always does. God is not going to allow you to sustain yourself forever. And I've met lots of people in the business world especially. I am self-dependent. I don't need anybody except for the whole company to do your work, to get the work done. You know, and this is the problem. Nobody is completely self-dependent because you need, you need somebody. Even if it's just a, somebody to do something for, you need somebody. And be, well, look, I, did, I built this business all on my own. All right, who are you selling this stuff? You know, and that's one of the things I tell people. Well, I want to be my own boss so I don't have any boss. I want to have my own company. I'm going, okay, so you have your own company and you have hundreds of bosses because you have to take care of your customers. And if you don't pay attention to your customers, you won't be in business long. So even when you're your own boss, you have lots of customers. And I, and I think a lot, there's this one business on, on Northern, the guy opens at like 5 o'clock in the morning, and he's closed by 11 o'clock. And there's nobody ever there. I mean, he's really good at what he does. I've been, I've, I, we used his service one time, and it's like, he's just getting out of the house. He's used to getting up early. He gets to, gets to this business and runs his little business on very strange hours. <laughs> But, you know, he's never going to make a lot of money. He's really good at what he does, but he's not going to make money because people aren't up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so he doesn't realize he needs, if he really wants a business, he needs other people. I don't think he wants a business. Like I said, I think his wife probably said, get it, you know, you're tired, get out of the house once in a while. So he opened a business so he could hang out for, for a couple hours away from home. But when you're in business, you have lots of bosses. Even if you have no corporate bosses, you still have every, every employee, uh, every customer really is a boss. And uh, here she's saying, I'm leaning on my fiance, and they're, on, my, on, my, on my beloved. And this interesting thing, I raised you from under the apple tree. There your mother brought you in travail, is really what it says, brought, brought you in travail, and brought you forth under that bear you. So her, and apparently from this statement, she was born out in the field under the, 
under the apple tree, the way it, the way it reads, you know, that she travailed under the apple tree, which was not too uncommon in agricultural places. The woman would go to work and sometimes have their children on the edges of the fields uh, because you worked all the way up until you couldn't work. And so it would not be a surprise that she's saying that she was born out in the apple orchard. Uh, we, in our day and age, that's kind of like, what? <laughs> uh, but it wasn't uncommon in that day. So it indicates that she was born there. And then we have the groom talking, and I love this. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. And a seal, if you remember, we've talked about seals at various times, but a seal was when they would take their ring and imprint it into a wax a wax mold. Uh, when you, they did not have gummed envelopes like we did, so you, you folded up your envelope in a nice way, you put a, a blob of wax on the, where everything came together, and then you would put your signet ring in there and, and say, this is, my, this is mine. If it's broken, you know that somebody's gotten into it. And so here is the, the groom, Jesus saying, set me as a seal on your heart and as a seal on your arm. Our heart, the seat of our emotions, says, put me, seal your heart with my seal. Jesus wants to indwell us. He wants to change our very seat of emotions. And when he indwells us, and this is the great news, when we get saved, God indwells us. And he starts changing us. And he starts changing the way we think at the heart level. Over time, our very heart changes. And the closer we draw to him, the more he changes our heart. And he's sealed on it. And we start making decisions over time that are based more on him and less on the world's way of thinking. And sometimes you might even go, well, how could I have made that decision? Wow, I, I, I was nice on that event. <laughs> you know, that kind of activity used to drive me nuts. I, I would have been re responding in a wrong way, and all of a sudden you realize I didn't respond the way I normally respond. God has changed me. It's not, and people notice it. And this is the great thing. And when we get saved, and I love this, I've watched people when they, when they ask Christ into their heart, and you just see every feature on their face just soften because all of a sudden the love of God lifts the weight that they're carrying. And so often we carry weights that we're not supposed to carry. We carry the weight of the guilt. We carry the weight of confusion. And God is saying, just give it all to him. And that's what we do when we get saved. We turn it all over to him. And oftentimes when we repent, we return all, we turn over all the problems to him and go, okay, God, you've got them. The unfortunate thing is how many times we turn back around after we've given him all our problems and say, well, God, uh, these, these little ones over here I think I can handle. And we take them right back and we put the weight back on us. Uh, if you read Pilgrim's Progress, Christian gets, finally makes it to, to the cross and he's been burdened by the weight of his sin and burdened by the weight of the sin and he could never get rid of it and he comes to the cross and it goes rolling down the burden goes rolling down the hill into the empty tomb at the bottom of the hill that is what god does for us he takes the weight and the burden of our sin off of us the guilt of our sin off of us and says you are forgiven you are forgiven and god lifts it up and literally, when I prayed with people and I just watched, you could just see the lightening up of their, their, their body, their eyes, their, 
their face, and it's wonderful to see. And you encourage them, saying, yes. And you listen, to, you listen to somebody's testimony, and they'll talk about it, how burdened they were coming into it. They didn't even know it was a burden. All they knew is that nothing was good. And then when God lifts that burden, it's gone. Have you ever been trying to carry a box or something that's just on the edge of what you can carry? You're doing okay. You know, it's not, you know, not easy. Not, but then somebody helps you, or they take it away from you. And I say, wow, wow. It was heavier than I thought it was. That's what God does with our sin. Until he takes it away, we really don't recognize how heavy the burden was or is. And he's right there saying, let me help you. And here she's saying, I'm leaning on him. I am leaning on God. And this is so important for us to lean on him and let him be our seal. And then he goes, for love is strong as death. Real love can endure hardships. And most of us don't hardly ever experience real love, but every once in a while we get that real love. And it can carry us through everything. When we really understand God's love for us, we can begin, begin to understand, it doesn't matter what comes my way, his love is holding me up, his love cares for me. Uh, love can withstand trials. Unfortunately, a lot of times trials destroy families and relationships because they're not based on the love. Usually they're based upon me first. I'm in this relationship as long as I'm getting something out of it, which is the way the world builds relationships. Well, I'll love you as long as I feel like I love you and I'll love you as long as things are going my way. But as soon as you don't please me, we're done. And unfortunately, that's where most marriages start. Unfortunately, even a lot of Christian marriages start that way, which is one of the reasons that uh, marriage counseling is a good thing, because people can start on the right foundation. When I do marriage counseling, one of the first things I talk about is what is love? Because love isn't a feeling. Love isn't an emotion that you get married on. It is a decision, and it's a life decision. And it must be. Because there's going to be times when you don't feel like you like that person. And hopefully you made a decision to love them. And God has made a decision to love us. I love the fact that God's love is objective. He chooses to love people. He chooses to love us as his family. He will never not choose to unlove us because he doesn't change. And I love the fact that it is objective. No matter what I do, God loves me. And when I hear people say, well, you don't know me. If you knew all the bad things I did, you know God doesn't love The only thing I can tell you is God loves you so much that Jesus died for your sins. And no, the, the windows aren't going to fall out of the church and the roof's not going to fall down and the, you know, the walls aren't going to fall flat. God loves you. And he is waiting for you to come to him. And the sad thing is, a lot of times people have to get to the rock bottom before they really realize that they need God. Uh, get rid of my self-sufficiency, realize that I've tried all the drugs and all the alcohol and all the, all the opposite sex and maybe the same sex, that that's where they're going and I'm not happy, so finally give up and choose God. And hopefully you don't have to go all the way down through every problem. Solomon had to go through that in Ecclesiastes. He went through everything you know, wealth and, and everything. And here, this person saying, I just want to love you. I want to love you. I'm leaning on you. And he says, make me your seal. And then he says, jealousy is cruel as the grave. 
the coals thereof are the coals of fire which has the most vehement flame. And in this particular jealousy, he's not talking about the good jealousy that protects. God is a jealous God. He protects us against all unwanted advances. And there is a time for, for that kind of a jealous act, activity. When you see somebody trying to go after your beloved and it's real, then there's a time for a defense. But if you're seeing people going after your beloved all the time, that's a problem. All right? Uh, and we want to be careful with that. It can get way overbalanced and we want to make sure that it is properly looked at. There is a time to be jealous. When you see somebody actively playing for your, for your, your intended, then, then there's, a, there's a reason for be jealous. Now how you react is going to have to be tempered. But if you see, if you see jealous, and jealous reactions and everything, and I know especially some guys who have a beautiful woman, they, they go, oh no, you can't, you can't go out with the girls even because you might have some guy hit on, no, that's way too far. That's the cruel jealousy. Now, uh, and it says it's cruel. And when you let it in, those coals, those embers stay there. And this is the problem. Once we get a bad thought in our mind, we usually don't extinguish it completely and there's embers. You know, if, you've, if you listen to the different reports, when firemen go out and, and beat down a fire, they usually hang out for hours or a day afterwards to make sure that the embers aren't there to reblaze. A lot of times, especially in forest fires, they, get, they think they've got it, and the next thing you know, winds kick up, blow those embers, and they have another fire again <laughs> because the embers were still smoldering and kick up a whole other fire. And in our minds sometimes, we need to be praying that God extinguish the embers completely. I don't even want this to be a thought because I don't want it to kick back up again. I don't want it to be emblazoned again. And this is what he said. It creates a vehement fire when it, when it re-sparks, re reignites. And then verse 7 says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would not utterly be, can, be despised. I'm going to use the word despised because that's what it translates into. So he's saying, no matter what comes against true love, it's not extinguished. And I love that. God's love is true toward us. No matter what I do, no matter what circumstances come my way, no matter what seems to be changing, God is not going to stop loving. And true love should be willing to say, I, I want what's best for that one who's loved. Again, I'm going to go back to the prodigal, father, uh, prodigal son. The father meets him and gives him back everything. Now, he has no inheritance left. He has spent his inheritance, and that's what he tells the older son. Everything I have is yours. But we are going to take care of your brother. <laughs> you know, he is your brother. We're going to take care of him. Even though he has no inheritance, I still love him. And I'm still going to support him. He's still my son. You get all the inheritance. When, when I die, it's all yours. Because he spent his. He's gone. But we are going to take care of him. God loves us so much that even though we come from a fallen race and he has bought us back. Now in our case, he's going to give us an inheritance because Jesus has no problem sharing his inheritance. He's not like the older brother in the, in the, in the parable of the prodigal son who doesn't want to share. But he says, I'm, going to serve, I'm sharing with all those that I've redeemed. I've bought them back and they're full, full children with an inheritance. We get a share of heaven. 
we get a share of all the riches of God. And I can't even imagine what that's all about. God is infinite. I can't imagine getting, even getting a share of his riches is going to be phenomenal. Yeah. And the beauty of even what was described is beyond anything I can comprehend. Streets of gold. Uh, you know, gold is so worthless he makes streets out of it. Uh, he describes the pearls as gates. And those are not small gates, so those are some pretty big pearls or something that looks like pearls. And the lights and colors that he talks about are just unbelievable. What does it mean? I have no idea. I have no idea what it means. One guy talks, says it sounds a lot like plasma, seeing plasma. And I'm going, okay, I'll buy that. doesn't matter to me. You know, it'll be something we can't comprehend in our, in, our, in our way of thinking. And looking forward to all the great blessings that God has in place for us. And I don't know what all, the, what all those blessings are going to be. All I know is they're going to be greater than anything we can comprehend. Verse 8. This is kind of interesting. The friends are talking. We have a little sister, and she has no breast. And, and what shall we do for our sister in the day that, when she shall be spoken for? If she were a wall, we would build upon her a palace of silver. If she were a door, we would enclose her with boards of cedar. So this is their, their response. We have a young sister. She's coming up to marriageable age. You know, she, that's what they're saying. She's, she's not developed yet. She's not ready to be married at all. And what shall we do for her when, she was spoke, when she's spoken of? If she were a wall, we'd build a palace of silver. Silver is precious in redemption. And so if she's a wall, she's virtuous. She's, she, she knows she's strong. We would, we would give her this redemption. If she was a door, we'd put boards of cedar around it. We'd give her strength. In other words, you're saying, well, if she's really strong and virtuous, we're going to give her the praise and honor of that, that virtue and that chastity. If she's a door and easily seduced and, and lightly, we're going to put cedar, cedar boards around it to help give her some support. All right? And basically, they're talking about the two types of people in all relationships, those that are really rigid with their, with their beliefs and hard to get talked into doing anything, to the other extreme, people who can be talked into doing anything. All right? And been listening to a lot of The Unshackled, and we see both sides of this a lot of times, where people have, I am not going to drink, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink. They hang around with all the friends that are drinking, and the next thing you know, they're drinking. They were doors, easily seduced. All right? Uh, this is why we have to be careful with who we hang out with. Because if you hang out with the wrong people, eventually you're going to bend to peer pressure. It, it just automatically happens. Peer pressure is something that will affect you. Uh, and if your best friends are, are people that are going to get you into trouble or are always getting into trouble, you eventually are going to get in trouble with them. If nothing else, you're going to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and be treated as if you were in trouble. And they're saying, you know, hey, you know, we'd like to help our sister out. We want to make sure that she is the right one. We're going to, if she's a wall, we're going to praise her virtue. We're going to praise her chastity. If she's easily seduced, we're going to strengthen up, the, strengthen up her resolve. We're going, to, we're going to watch her like a hawk. You know, I've, heard, I've heard certain girls complain, you know, well, I had four older brothers. I couldn't do anything. The guys couldn't do anything with me. Good. <laughs> it was a good thing for you. You, know, you may not recognize that it was a good thing for you. you know, they, they didn't want it to happen, and that's what they're saying here. 
you know, we're going to be the ones to protect you. We're going to keep you, you know, you're easily seduced. We're going to make sure that you're not <laughs> doing the wrong things. Or you're a silly girl. We're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to guard you. Or you're a really mature girl who's not doing anything. We're going to praise you. We're going to really sing that praise for you. And this is, this is what they're saying. And, and she responds, I am a wall. My breasts are like towers or, well, or better, better when they raised bread, a bed. When I was, then was I in my eyes as a one that found favor. So she says, hey, I'm, I'm chaste, I'm pure, I'm that wall, I have a strong standards. And I am going to be able to stand, and she's saying, I'm not, I'm not flat chested, I've, de I've developed it. Uh, towers is a pretty strong word uh, for that particular description. And it says, in my eyes as one that has found favor or completeness. She looked at herself as somebody that was complete. And one of the things that we need to understand is in Christ we are complete. We have everything we need. Without him, we're not complete. We don't have anything of value at all. And this is something that is very important, especially for those of us that are Christians, to somehow not lose sight of everything we have is because of God. I have any blessing I have because he graciously gives me the strength to live and the power to live and himself living in me that gives me the strength. And even if I've been walking with, with Christ for 90 years, I still have nothing in me of value for God. It's all what he has done. And this is a hard thing for people who grow up in the church. A lot of times they don't really realize their sin. If they don't go off into deep sins and everything, go, well, I've been good. I'm a Pharisee. I've always followed God. I keep all the rules. Okay, I still think you lie and steal once in a while and have some covetous thoughts. Well, well, yeah, I'm a, but those aren't really big. You know, compared to everybody else, I, I don't have any big sins. And we need to understand that God says all sin is sin. I mean, I was thinking about it just, just uh, the other day. What was the sin of Adam and Eve? They ate a piece of fruit. And all of humanity fell because they ate a piece of fruit that God said, don't eat. What a big deal that was, right? Eating a piece of fruit. But God had told them not to do it. The only rule they had, don't eat that one piece of fruit over there. And yet they couldn't keep one rule, which kind of indicates that we would never be able to do enough. All it took was one sin for all of humanity to fall and not even a big one. It wasn't like, okay, I don't want you to kill anybody. Okay, God, we have no desire to kill any of our kids yet. <laughs> you know, get, you wait till they're teenagers, we might have... But, you know, there was no, what we would consider big sin forbidden from them. It was, don't eat that fruit over there. And yet, that fell, and one sin brought down humanity. And how often do we try to compare ourselves one to another... And even as Christians, sometimes we get to this place where, you know, God, uh, I haven't, I've not killed anybody. I don't, I've never stolen, you know, I haven't stolen anything big, maybe a pen from a store one time or something, but I've never taken any big things. I've never committed adultery or fornication, you know, uh, maybe a little bit of coveting, but no, that's not a big deal either, God, you know. Uh, but God says it is. Any sin is enough to keep us from him. And we need to keep that in mind. 
nothing that we do deserves God. And everything that we do wrong separates us from him. If it wasn't for his grace and, his, and the blood of Christ. Jesus said, I will set you free because of what he did for us. And he sets us free and puts us above all of the problems that we have. And he cleanses us and he puts a robe of righteous, his, his robe of right, his righteousness upon us. So that when we stand before God, God sees us as perfect, not in our own righteousness, but because of what he did. And that's the preciousness of God. God sees us as righteous because he sees us with his righteousness and it's all his work. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his favor. His favor. He's not going to let us do things and say, well, God, see, I earned this. God, I earned my ticket into heaven. You may have, you may have paid the initial price, but I earned it. Nope, that's not what goes on. God is not going to let us earn heaven. Now, we get to earn some rewards in heaven, but we don't get to earn heaven. We don't get to earn our mansion in heaven. We may get to earn the decorations in our mansion, but we don't get to earn the mansion. And this is what it's saying. I have found favor. I am complete. Verse 11 Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Haman, and he lent it out the vineyard to, to keepers. Everyone for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, which is mine, is before you, O, o Solomon, must must have a thousand, and those that keep the fruit there in two hundred. You that dwell in the gardens and the companions, hearken unto my voice, cause me to hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be you like the roe or the young heart upon the mountains of spices. So now she's looking, it says Solomon has a vineyard, and it says it, it takes, uh, she goes in the second part, it takes 200 people to take care of his vineyard. That had to have been a massive vineyard to take 200 people to care for it. And he's making thousands of pieces of silver from it. All right, this is quite a vineyard. I can't even imagine how big a vineyard it must be to take 200 keepers to keep it. And I know there's pruning and all that, and, and I don't know even in modern days how many people it takes to maintain those vineyards that are out there. But I know some people just have their farm and they have huge vineyards that only their family takes care of until it's harvest time and they, hire some handful of people to harvest it, but this is 200 people to maintain his vineyard. And she goes, oh, I have a vineyard, Solomon, and it's yours. I'm making it yours. And remember, all the way back in Song of Solomon 6, she goes, I was assigned to my family's vineyard and I couldn't even keep my own vineyard. I couldn't take care of myself. I couldn't take care of this. She goes, Solomon, you have a big vineyard and I'm giving you my vineyard. Basically, I'm giving you me giving you all that I have. As Christians, have we given God all that we have? You know, and sometimes it's pretty easy for us to give him all that we have. But we were listening to a story coming up, to, up here today. And the person said, was challenged, that she had given all that she had, but she was challenged, have you given God everything that you are not? How many times do we make excuses to God? God, I can't do that because I'm not qualified. And sometimes we limit what God can do in us by not giving him all of us, good and bad, uh, our strengths, our weaknesses. And you know, 
We, we sang a song a couple of days, you say, and one of the lines in the song, I give you all that I have and, and you get all the praise and you give me all the strength. You know, he gives everything. I can't do, even in my strength, in my strength I give it to him. God, you can have all my strength, but also, God, also in my weaknesses. If I fail, God, it's yours as well. Because I turn everything over to you. And God will give us the strength to do what he wants us to do. Many, many I don't know where it originated, but it's those God calls, he empowers to, to, do the, to do the work. If he's called you to do it, he's going to empower you. And what that is, I don't know. But he will give you the strength. Whatever you feel that you're being called to do, step out. And God will give you the strength. Because I've, I've been asked by God to do things that made no sense. God, uh, you know, I'm not very good in that area. And God says, yeah, I know. But I am. God will accomplish it. If we could do everything that God asks us to do, then we're going to get arrogant and proud. God, look what I'm doing for you. God almost always will ask us to do something that we do not think we can do. And that, I'm going to say he asks us to do something that we know we can't do a lot of times. So that he gets the honor. He gets the praise. And he's very cautious about letting us to do things that we're strong in. Because we can get proud. Well, you know what, God? Yeah, yeah, I, was, I was always good at that anyway. You know, you're, you're really, you, you, you blessed me in that and I gave it back to you. And we get proud about it. But more often than not, God will say, okay, but I want you to do this. Well, God, you know, I can't do that. I'm not, I'm not strong in that area. You know, one of the things he's done for me as a pastor is that I'm an introvert that doesn't like to talk to people. What does a pastor do? Talk to people all the time. <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, God, you've got to give me the words because I can't do that. It's not in me to do that. You need to do it. And everybody I ever talk to, when they, when they really get down to it, they say God asks them to do things that they know that is not a strength for them. And then they watch God bless them in, a better, in great ways. So I've always encouraged people, if you think God's telling you to do it, step out. Step out and see what God is going to do. What will God do to help you out in this? And then the last verse of this, make haste my beloved and be you like the road to the young heart upon the mountains of spices. What I heard on this, because make haste is come quickly. What do we want God to do right now? Jesus, come quickly. I can't wait for the rapture. I, I, would, I would not hurt my feelings if we didn't even get to end this Bible study and get to go home. Lord Jesus, come quickly. While I'm here, I want to serve him to the best of my ability, but I am looking forward to the come quickly, Lord. I am ready to go home. God, come and take us. And that's the whole thing of the church since the first church. Jesus, come. You know, Jesus said, I'm going to return quickly. His definition of quickly is not quite the same as us as human beings, but is from his perspective, he's still, he's still going to be quick. 2,000 years is nothing to him. 3,000 years is nothing to God. As for humans, it's a long time. But come quickly. And Jesus is waiting. I think Jesus, because Jesus is waiting for the Father to say, go get your bride. Son, go get your bride. And I can almost see Jesus just stomping at the bit, looking at the Father. Is it time yet? Is it time to go get my bride? 
I built their homes, I built their houses, I built their mansions, I built their, their suites of rooms, you know, is it time? I, I've prepared everything, I've got the occupation, I've got them provided for, is it time to go get my bride? And bring the bride to the wedding feast? He's waiting, anxiously waiting, almost as anxious as we are waiting. If, if you've ever been married, you know what it's like to have that, that, that moment. It's been building the day, the, the day of the wedding. Sometimes it gets pretty hectic getting up to the wedding day. But for us men, standing up, up front, waiting for the bride to come down the, the walkway and seeing that beautiful person we're planning to get married to, taking your breath away because she is all decked out in the, in the beautiful gown and, and everything, and everybody's centered on her when she comes down that aisle. The bride looks down, probably sees her husband, says, why am I marrying this gorilla? No. <laughs> you know, look at that man down there. I don't know what the woman's thinking because I've not been in that part. But you know, I'm sure her father's probably looking down there saying, who's this gorilla I'm passing her off to? But uh, she's looking forward to it as much, you know, as much. And then they get married. Jesus is waiting for his bride, who he sees as spotless, cleaned up, in, being clothed in his righteousness. And looking up and saying, that's the person that I want. I desire my bride. And I think the greatest thing I have been impressed as we've gone through this book is how much it keeps going over. God desires us. So much more than we really realize or comprehend. Yes, we know he died for us. Yes, we know he's cleaned us up and, and perfected us, that he lives inside us. But the lesson from Song of Solomon that I'm taking away from this is God desires us. Literally desires us, wants us. Why? I have no idea. <laughs> he sees something in us that, we, that I can't even fathom because he is God and, and he's, he wanted to redeem us. He, he desires us enough that he created us, knowing us that he, we were going to fall and that he would have to redeem us and wants us. And I, and I just love the fact that he wants us more so than I've ever realized it in the past. God desires us. All right. Lord, we just thank you for this, day, this time. We thank you for the book of Song of Solomon. God, we thank you that you desire us. Lord, help us to always remember that and to seek you and seek to serve you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.